On the screen, I have a picture of Kim Jong-il. He is the deceased former dictator of North Korea. He's the father of the current leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. It's interesting when you look at some of the legendary propaganda that is associated with Kim Jong-il and undoubtedly his son as well. This is a, a portrait of the deceased leader there on the screen. And here are some of the things that are said to the people of North Korea about Kim Jong-il. Legend has it that a double rainbow and a glowing new star appeared in the heavens to herald the birth of Kim Jong-il in 1942. Before his birth, a swallow foretold his coming. Kind of messianic in nature, isn't it? Almost. Here are some other things that are said about him. He never used a bathroom. He wrote over 1,500 books in a three-year time span. Wrote six full operas that are considered by experts to be the best six operas ever created. The first time he played golf in 1994, he shot 11 hole-in-ones and was 38 under par 34. Verified, of course, by all of his bodyguards, no less. From there, he nearly always shot several hole-in-ones any time he golfed. And it goes on. He began walking at just three weeks old and could fluently speak at just eight weeks old. People the world over received plastic surgery to try to look more like Kim Jong-il, his face and clothing styles are also widely mimicked. His birthday is highly celebrated throughout the world. He had the ability to control the weather, and it usually reflected his moods. He invented hamburgers as a way to provide a new tasty food for his impoverished people. These are some of the things that are told by the press to the people of North Korea. And uh, here is an analysis of the lies of North Korea. The Korean government lies to the outside world. The government lies to the people. The press lies to the people. The people lie to each other. The tour guides lie to the tourists. The press depicts South Korea as a suffering an American-occupied country. The leader's speeches talk about North Korea being the envy of the world with the highest quality of life. Facts are not a key part of the equation in North Korea. And this satellite image at night of the Korean Peninsula says it all. You can see where the 38th parallel actually is. North of that is North Korea. It's pitch black at night, alluding to the economic conditions of North Korea, and below it you see South Korea. There are a lot of lies that are promulgated in North Korea that could not be farther from the truth. And as we continue to our third installment of our series entitled Our Picture of God, our thesis is around this notion that there are many lies associated with the character of God. Many of these lies we have struggled with in our childhood, even as adults, 
a picture of God that could not be farther from the truth. And the reason why the devil wants us to have a tainted picture of God is because our picture of God, if it is accurately portrayed, draws us out to a love for him. To love God, or I should say to know God, is to love him. When we see that God is a wonderful, beautiful God, we love him. And coming from that love for God, we say, you know what, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. Our picture of God is foundational to our Christian experience. But if that is tainted, it leads us down a path where we don't love God, or maybe we do, but it's mixed in with fear, and then it leads us down to a path of perhaps legalism or bondage, all these types of things to our picture of God. Great Controversy, page 569. It is Satan's constant effort, as we read last week, to misrepresent the character of God. This is his plan. In Steps of Christ, page 10, Satan led men to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor. He pictured the creator as a being who is watching with jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men that he may visit judgments upon them. This is the misrepresentation of God by Satan. And the purpose of Christ coming to earth, it was to remove this dark shadow by revealing to the world the infinite love of God that Jesus came to live among men. Desire of Ages, page 19, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. So we come to our last story today. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 26, as we look at a picture of God found in the last final moments before the crucifixion. He's on the road from Pilate's judgment hall to Golgotha, and on this road, it is known today as the Via Della Rosa. It's literally known as the Way of Suffering. It's about half mile, 600 meters. You can go there today, and they have certain markers along the way where it is assumed that certain events happened, and this is where people believe that Simon of Cyrene was called upon by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ. You can go there to this memorial of that event. So we pick it up, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So this was a critical moment on that journey, Jesus could no longer carry the cross, so he looked around and found this man who was expressing by his facial expression a sympathy for Jesus. So he said, you there, you look sympathetic to this man. Carry his cross. So he carried it behind him. And the next verse tells us that there was a large number of people following him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Imagine... This scene, Jesus has just stumbled, another man is called to carry Jesus. 
carry Jesus' cross, and as that man is about to carry Jesus' cross, the Bible tells us there was a great crowd, but within the crowd, there was a host of women that were not just crying out of sympathy for Jesus, they were wailing. Now, in Western culture, I find that typically it's a little bit more reserved when it comes to expressing our sorrow. That is not so in Korean culture. There is an expression, and many times in Eastern culture, of a torrent of emotion that comes out, and the Bible tells us that they were not only crying out of sympathy for Jesus, they were wailing. The natural human reaction when someone expresses sympathy for us, what is it? I kind of like the attention, don't you? Like when I'm sick, my wife says, are you feeling sick? And I say, oh yes, (laughs) awful. Matter of fact, it just hurts right here. Could you get me something for my headache? The, The natural response is to go more to a inner focus. That's human, that's justifiable. When someone says, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss, it's natural, you say thank you. And, and you take the focus more inward. This is a natural human response. Here is a gaggle of women that are looking at Jesus, and it's genuine sympathy, especially when you read the Desire of Ages, that they're expressing for Christ. It is such a genuine sympathy that they are wailing because of him. Jesus is having been just flogged, weak, tired. He's about to be executed by crucifixion. And we would give him a pass, wouldn't we? For just being a little self-absorbed, right? Say, yeah, this is pretty tough, by the way, I'm going to die for you. (laughs) Thank you for the sympathy. That would have been understandable. Here are these women expressing sympathy for him, but notice Jesus' response in the next verse. Verse 28 through 31. He doesn't turn the focus inward. Notice what he does. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they People do these things when the tree is green. What will happen when it is dry? Notice the nuances of what Jesus says. He says the time will come. He's looking down toward the future. Scholars believe that Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus looks at them and he thinks of an event that is going to happen almost 40 years later, eighty seventy. This is eighty thirty one. Jesus looks at them and says, look, don't worry about me. I'm worried about you. The destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus claims that 1,100,000 people were killed during the siege, of which the majority were Jewish, and of that, 97,000 were captured and enslaved. And here's a quote from Josephus. The slaughter was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests who fought, and those entreated mercy were hewn down in, 
indiscriminate carnage. The numbers of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. And here you can see today stones there in Jerusalem from the destruction there in AD 70. Jesus says, look, don't weep for me. Dale Carnegie, one of his books says, his toothache, when we have a toothache, means more to him than a famine in China that kills one million people. A boil on his neck interests him more than 40 earthquakes in Africa. And there is this phenomena that is receiving a lot of press lately about narcissism and self-absorption, isn't it? Seems, and there was this one article I read that was fascinating. They said, oh, does social media make people narcissists or are narcissists just using the platform of social media? Is it the chicken or the egg? And there's this whole analysis of narcissism and social media and this self-focus and this self-love. Now, I want to say there is something called a healthy self-love. But self-absorption takes it to another level. When you look it up, dictionaries define self-absorption unappealingly unappealingly as preoccupied with oneself or one's affairs, frequently adding that it's to the exclusion of others or the outside world. And Time Magazine, you can see there, the me, me, me generation, a self-absorbed narcissistic culture, unless we be too hard on the youngsters and the people coming up, it's easy to be smug. But this is really a human condition, isn't it? to be self-absorbed in varying degrees. And uh, there was this really brutal article that I read, and here's some quotes from it. Ouch. I was like, oh man, this is getting a little bit uncomfortable. A self-absorbed person thinks the world is just about them. Thus the world, from their point of view, is a place comprising them and perhaps a few persons around them who they can control. How the world affects other people really doesn't concern them. They do not see the world from another person's eyes. They are so consumed by their own world and self-image that it is near impossible for other people to measure up to their standards. They maintain a superiority complex that most commonly leads them to devaluing others, and it is always about their opinions. Last but not least, for the self-absorbed person, the problem is either you or other, never me. Most of the time, it would seem like no form of self-healing or therapy would suit them as they are focused on all the wrongs the world has done to them, never accepting any responsibility. Now, lest we're just smug here and thinking, oh, I wish this self-absorbed person over there would listen to this, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, this is a perfect sermon for so-and-so. The reason this hurts is I'm like, wow, in varying degrees, we all have a struggle with being self-absorbed, isn't it? Human condition, varying degrees on the spectrum. And uh, just to be a little bit vulnerable here, <laughs> a number of years ago, I broke my leg, fractured it, got a cast. And uh, something about a cast, it just garners all this attention. 
people come up to me and say, David, how are you doing? I say, oh, it's so painful. <laughs> Could you sign it, say something nice? <laughs> um, and while you're at it, can you bring that chair and kind of prop it up for me? And, and the focus just becomes inward. And uh, people give you a pass during those times when you're, when you're going through some suffering, quote unquote, that say, hey, we, we want you to be a little bit self-absorbed during this time. But I want you to look at the nature of what Jesus is like. This is the nature of God. The Desire of Ages sums it up so beautifully. With amazement, the angels beheld the infinite love of Jesus, who, suffering the most intense agony of mind and body, say the next few words with me, thought only of others. This is angels. They're looking at Jesus on the Via Della Rosa, suffering the most intense agony of mind and body, and he looks at these women that are giving him sympathy, and the only thing that he can think of is, look, I'm worried about you. And he gives them a warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not antithetical to his nature. This is his nature. This is who God is. This is a manifestation of the character of God, a God who is always thinking of others. In the most painful, excruciating moment when we would have all given him a pass to think of himself at least a little bit, Jesus looks at the daughters of Jerusalem and says, look, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you. Thought only of others. In his humiliation, as a prophet had addressed the daughters of Jerusalem. Desire of Ages, page 70, says from his early years, he possessed, he was possessed of one purpose. He lived to bless others. This is a revelation of the character of God as we saw in our window of worship this morning, four individuals trying to see what God was like. The beauty of it is all of us have equal access to this vision of who God is. Many times we say, it wouldn't have been nice to live in the first century to see a vision of God. Well, we have the record in the Gospels of who God really is. And this is a living demonstration of that reality. The God who is always thinking of others. This community is really perfectly expressed in the notion of the Trinity. If you want a reflection that I believe we'll be thinking about throughout eternity, it is the perfect community in the Trinity. Think about it. The Father doesn't live for himself. He is an expression, focus toward the Son. The Son is not living for Himself. The Son is living for the Holy Spirit. And in this perfect circuit of beneficence, you have perfect community because there is perfect selflessness. That is what love is all about. 
This one quote, love is always ready to deny self, to give, sacrifice, just in measure of its sincerity and intensity. Perfect love is perfect self-forgetfulness. Hence, there is love in a home. Unselfishness is the law. Each forgets self and lives for others. The beauty of this is that God wants to not only have this demonstrated in Him, through grace, He wants this to come down into our marriages, praise God. Marriage can be, by the grace of God, a beautiful demonstration of this reality. Imagine a husband thinking about his wife first. The wife thinking about the husband. There is a beautiful bond through that. Think of the family where every member is thoughtfully thinking of the other individual. Think of a community of faith and believers where we are all thinking of others first. And what makes heaven, heaven, is that the reality of God's nature and who he is permeates the culture of heaven. Everyone in heaven will have the reproducing of God's character in our lives so that every person is always thinking of others first by the grace of God. And the beauty of God's work in us is leave here thinking, you know what, I'm just going to try my best to think of others first. The natural byproduct of selflessness comes by this principle, by thinking about the God who is always thinking of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, by beholding, we become changed. It's the natural byproduct of that reality. And as we think about the God who is always thinking of us, I don't know about you, but for me, it just brings me to a profound wonder and amazement and awe as to who he is. And this is really the ground of worship and praise because in heaven every living creature will be in awe as to the reality and the beauty of who God is and it's going to erupt in spontaneous praise and worship because of the wonder of the reality of God as expressed in the life of Jesus Christ. And through this meditation we are changed into the same image. Amen? From glory to glory. From character to character. It's a message of hope, friends. We can't fabricate this, amen? I'm a sinner in need of grace. It's just as much struggling with self-absorption as the next person. But it is through this process, by thinking about the God who is always thinking of us, that we can be transformed into his image by his grace. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, 
Thank you for this picture of who God is. That on the way to the cross, suffering the most intense agony of mind and body, you were only thinking of others. Father, my life is rebuked by this, but I thank you that you do not condemn us, but that there is hope, there is grace, and that by thinking about the God who is always thinking of me, that you can transform us, you can change us by your grace. I pray for every person in this room. Lord, I pray that you bless our marriages. Give us a heart like Jesus, to love as Jesus loved. Pray for the families in this church. Pray that you'd repair any dysfunctions. I pray for the relationships in this church family as a community of faith, that there would be a spirit of reconciliation and renewal and that you would give us a greater perspective to come outside of our own vision and our own world and our own parameters to think as God thinks, to love as God loves. Bless us, we pray, to that end, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.